Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. But we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Do please take your seats. All three gospels, uh, Matthew, all three um, of the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put this event of Jesus meeting the, the rich young man. Put this event. Uh, close to the end of Jesus' ministry. And in fact, he's just setting out on a journey that will take him down through Jericho and then eventually back up, turning westwards to Jerusalem, where he will enter Jerusalem and ultimately die on the cross and be raised from the dead. But just as he sets out on this particular day, a man runs up to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice three things. Firstly, the man is anxious for a Jewish man, particularly a well-off one, to run in public and then to fall at a man's feet was to make a very big spectacle of himself. He's anxious to get some answers, although he doesn't, it turns out, get quite the answers that he'd hoped for. Secondly, though, he does really believe that Jesus has the answers. Because he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then says in verse 18 what seems to be an extraordinary thing. But actually it's quite simple. What he he says is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. 
Now, Jesus is not saying, I'm not good because only God is good. What he's saying is, only God is good. You've called me good. Therefore, I am God. You're right. I do hold the answers to eternal life. Thirdly, in verse 19, Jesus quotes the 6th, 7th, 8th and ninth commandments. And the man says to him, oh, I've kept those ever since I was a boy. I've, I've kept those. Here's a question. Why didn't Jesus start with the first few commandments? And why did he miss out the last one? Well, actually, it's brilliant. Because the first few commandments are all those about putting God first in our lives. And Jesus knows that this man is about to reveal the fact that he doesn't or he won't. But please don't think that Jesus is making fun of this man. In fact, in verse 21, we can see that Jesus is deeply touched by anyone who tries their best to do the will of God and still has the integrity to search for truth. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that great? Jesus looks at us and even though he knows we might reject him, he loves us. But now Jesus puts his finger on the problem in verse 21. He says to the man, there's one thing you lack, go and sell everything and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. But the man's face fell and he, he went away sad because he wasn't prepared to put God ahead of his wealth in the pecking order. In this painting by um, Heinrich Hoffmann, we can see Jesus pointing at some of the poor people who might benefit from this man's wealth. But the rich man's eyes are downcast and he's turning away and he's not really engaging, is he? Why is this so challenging? Why did this account used to literally put the fear of God into my heart when I first, in the first few years of my Christian journey? Well, the answer is because, well, compared to most of the rest of the world, we are rich. We live in the UK. It's, do you know the UK is in the top 2% of wealthy countries in the world? Now, not everyone in the UK is wealthy, but we live in the top 2% of wealthy countries in the world. And what's more than that, we live in the wealthiest southeast corner of that very wealthy country. We may not think of ourselves as rich, but we are by any standards. And the problem about that is what Jesus says next. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The worrying implication for us, and for this rich man who, this rich man probably goes to the synagogue every Sabbath. He probably reads his Bible, the Torah, every day. He probably does some good works as well. He certainly was striving to lead a good life. And yet, Jesus implies that he might miss out on God's kingdom. He goes on to say that it's easier, as we've heard, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I wonder if you've ever heard this saying, um, money is the root of all evil. Well, actually, that's a misquote because, because it's a quote from Paul's letter to, to his first letter to Timothy. And what he actually said is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And of course, many other things are as well. 
The love of power is another root of all kinds of evil. Um, But the love of money and and material things is so prevalent in our society and in our culture, and if we're honest, in many of us, in in our own hearts. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, you cannot love both God and money. He says it's impossible. Either you will love the one and hate the other or despise the one and be devoted to the other. He says you can't do both. So if we really are followers of Jesus, as we claim to be, then Jesus has to come first. That's the cost of following him. He must be Lord of everything. In fact, Jesus goes on later in the passage to imply that not even our homes and our families should come before him. How hard is that? Do you know, there's a a saying about about people who who come to faith um, in God. Uh, that the last part of you to be converted is your wallet. And, and, and oh, how true that was for me, certainly for me. I, I remember my first sort of fellowship group Bible study after I'd come to faith about 12 years ago. And it was all, it was all on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 7, uh, 5, 6 and 7. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable when we were studying the bit about giving to the needy, about giving generously to the needy. And um, um, I'd never given any serious thought to giving money to anyone I didn't need to up until that point in my life. And then I heard people talking about this strange habit called tithing, where Christians, apparently joyfully, gave up a percentage of their, of their income, traditionally a tenth, um, back to God to the church as a thank you for all God had given them. And I can tell you now that personally I did not feel a great deal of joy at the prospect of that. You see, the reason for that was that although I'd come to faith in God, I still trusted money and material things more than I trusted God. And it was some time before I decided to dare to try and trust God with my money. So what do we do? How do we avoid the pitfall of valuing money more highly than God? Especially when we live in a society which values money and material things so much more highly than almost everything else. Well, I think there are two things. Generosity and trust. If we want to be sure that we don't love money more than God, there's an easy answer. Well, it sounds easy to say. Give generously. If we give generously, we cannot love money more than God. It's it's a complete impossibility. It's a guaranteed 100% cure. So here's how God's economy works. It works like this. God gives us, slide coming up, God gives us everything we have. Okay? He gives us everything we have. With thankful hearts, we give generously back to God. Now, traditionally, in the Old Testament, the guidelines were 10% of one's income. But whatever we give, it needs to be generous. Um, out of gratitude, not under pressure, out of gratitude. And from the accounts, of course, in the early church in the book of Acts, I think it's probable that they gave an awful lot more than 10% of their income. But it needs to be generous and it needs to be out of gratitude. And then the result of generous giving is that God is now in charge of our money. We've put him first and so we can trust him to give us all we need to live out our purpose in life, the purpose he has for each one of us. Contrast that with the worldly economy, which looks like this. 
God gives us all that we have. Anxious that we'll run short of money if we give any away. We keep it all or we save it, but we hold on to it. The problem with that is that if we decide to do it our way, then we're keeping God out of the picture. And then we're on our own. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So we have a choice. Is it God's economy or is it worldly economy? That's the question, really, that Jesus was asking the rich young man in our, in our gospel reading. And it's a question, in a sense, that he constantly asks each one of us. It's a hard message, isn't it? It, it really is. Once again, Jesus is breathtakingly challenging. He always is. But the gospel is, of course, good news, not bad news. And the good news is that if we will trust Jesus, then we will be right in the centre of God's will, and he will help us. And we know he's trustworthy because, as we said, when, as we'll say in a minute, when we affirm our faith, Christ died for us. He died for our sins. He laid down his life for us, so we know we can trust him. And however hard it might be to trust our money, our relationships, our possessions, and even our families to God, Jesus promises that God will help us if we turn to him. Verse 26 of our passage, the disciples say, in effect, you know, how hard is this? Who, who then can be saved, they say. But Jesus says, well, you can't do it on your own. Verse 27, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And when we do trust him, he pours out his blessing. In verse 28, the wonderfully impetuous Peter says to Jesus, but we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus reassures him in verse 29 when he says, and I paraphrase, I tell you the truth, no one who has put me first and been prepared to suffer the consequences will fail to receive so much more in this life and in the life to come. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet is warning the people about their selfishness. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. In other words, give generously. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Well, which of us doesn't want a blessing like that on our lives? I'm going to finish very briefly by telling you a short story. Some of you know that Kirsty and I used to live in South Africa uh, for a number of years. And I love the country. Uh, we, look at, we look upon it almost as our second home. And... Um, and I have to admit to a tinge of envy towards my daughter because she's in six weeks' time, she's leaving for, to, South, to go to South Africa for two years. But anyway, back to the story. Even after we came back from living in South Africa, I was still a frequent visitor there on business and we used to go there for holidays. We love the country. We really love it. But when several years ago I was wrestling with whether to give up my career job and go into full-time church employment... The thing that I really struggled with more than anything was the thought that on a curate's salary, and even on a vicar's salary, we probably wouldn't be able to afford trips to South Africa anymore. And that was a really big deal for me. That was the thing I most, most was, was going to miss. And um, 
Well, eventually God got the better of me, and, and I gave up. I took the plunge, went into, came out of business, went into full-time church um, uh, ministry. And within three years, the amazing thing was, within three years of doing that, we had two trips to South Africa within those three years, even though we had no money for the tickets. And each time, God appeared to provide the tickets in the most unlikely situations. The first time, Virgin Airlines made a mistake on the frequent flyer account of a friend of ours who lives in South Africa and awarded them two free return tickets, London to Johannesburg. And uh, they actually were so honest, they told Virgin about it, but Virgin said, you know, you've been so honest, we'll honour it anyway. And so they gave us the tickets, and out we went. The second time was even stranger. A friend who used to work in London in an art gallery, but for the last ten years has been spearheading an AIDS orphans project in South Africa was contacted by her old boss in the art gallery to ask if she knew of any contacts who might be interested in a particularly well-known painting. She made one phone call, and to her utter amazement, the painting sold, and he gave her a cut of the commission. She paid for our tickets to go out and visit her project. So within three years, twice, um, even though we had no money, twice we were able to visit the place that we love so much. Now, I know, of course, we can put that down to coincidence, but do you know, I just can't help feeling that God was showing us that we could trust him and that he would bless us if we would dare to trust him. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that if we give generously, our bank accounts will swell to six-figure proportions um, or anything like that. Um, That's not the message. The message is that if we trust God, he is faithful. That's the message. As we talked about, for those of you who were on the Alpha course last week, faith isn't just about believing up here. It's about trusting, actually taking the step of trust. And so at the very end, we're still left with that question that Jesus kind of had for the the rich young man. Are we going to be like the rich young man and hold out on Jesus? Or are we going to be like Peter and be sold out for Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please would you show each one of us what it is in our lives that we hold dearer in our hearts than you. Shine your light on whatever it is we pray and show us now If it's money, give us the courage to be generous givers who trust you for all our needs. If it's our comfort, help us to step out of our comfort zone to the place where you are calling us. If it's wrong relationships or personal pride, Lord, help us to lay these things at the foot of the cross. We want you to be Lord of our lives. Thank you that you have made it possible to do what is otherwise impossible. As you laid down your life for us, help us to lay down our lives for you. We pray in your precious name. Amen.